0: It's a summer tradition for a lot of New Yorkers, escaping the city for the serenity of the Hamptons. Dan Retiner knows all about the summer hot spot. He's been writing about it for years. Dan founded the free weekly newspaper Dan's Papers in 1960. He was just 20 years old then. He's still a staple on the east end of Long Island and out with a new book called Still in the Hamptons, more tales of the rich, the famous, and the rest of us. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. And this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and org. Dan's our guest on this morning's Cityscape for the full half hour. Dan, thanks for being here.
1: Well, thank you for having me on the show.
0: Now, this is not your first memoir about life in the Hamptons. What number is this?
1: Uh, this is three. Um, I I was thinking of doing a total of five. I think Churchill did that.
0: There you go. So you have two more to go. <laughs> we had you on the show, I guess, back in 2008 when the first one came out in the Hamptons.
1: Yes, One of the things that people think is uh, when they see that there's three is that you do, like, in the Hamptons, the early years, you know, and then in the Hamptons, uh, grammar school, and then so forth and so on. But that's not true because when I did the first book, I only intended to do the one book. So it was from 1958, 59. This paper, newspaper started in 1960 until the present day, which at that time was 2008. Uh, The second book went the same period but to 2010, and this one the same period to 2012. So you're really getting four more years here. Of stories that occurred over this uh, length of time, they just kind of kept flooding back i mean i or not back, I guess back uh, in other words, they occurred. I kind of put them aside, most of them all these are fresh news stories, they're just reminiscences of things that happened that e- that either did or didn't appear in the paper. Most of them did not they're not articles from the paper, but um sort of a backstory to some of the articles that did appear in the paper.
0: How did the paper come about, Dan's papers in the Hamptons? Oh, because I didn't want to be a pharmacist. Your dad was a pharmacist. Yes,
1: and I worked for him in uh, the in store. In Montauk, right? In, in Montauk, and I worked for him in the store when I was in high school, and um, uh, my mother was making hints about how I could go study pharmacy, but I really did not like being cooped up. I didn't like um, uh, being in a retail store all day. It didn't seem to me I it was something I wanted to do. Uh, I've always been a... kind of storyteller or a listener of stories. So I wanted to be out and about. Um, I, I then decided I wanted to become an architect, but that didn't work out. I think when I applied to architectural school, I was really, the first question I was asking was, where's the lounge where everybody meets to tell stories? (laughs) <laughs> Coffee, you know. So I was just not destined to do anything but uh, this. Which...
0: What year was that that you started Dance Papers?
1: Nineteen sixty. I was um, a junior in, in undergraduate uh, school.
0: Did you ever imagine that it would last this long? It's still going.
1: Uh, I did not. No, I, I had no idea uh, what was what was going to happen. I think, uh, I, I think that um, I saw it as a way of. Um, being able to publish the stories I wanted to write without somebody rejecting them or saying, no, but we have to take this part out, you know, or something like that. You had complete editorial control. I had control. complete editorial <laughs> control, and I really liked that feeling. Uh, so uh, I began to look, and especially in, uh, as an undergraduate, when I'd already st- I started the um, the paper between my sophomore and junior year in college, and um, at that point I was considering myself to be a very famous uh, writer of uh, newspaper journals, and I was reading Addison and Steele. Actually, Mark Twain did that. Um, Harry Golden down in North Carolina was doing that at that time. I I listened to a radio personality who was a great storyteller during that era also. Fell in love with this guy. Met him once, um, Gene Shepard. And uh, there are still people walking around today uh, at my advanced stage that I meet all the time who were fans of his. So that's that's sort of how the roots of the paper got to happen. I also, at that time, uh, needed my father's blessing, I guess, and because uh, I, I do love my father and, and um, did then. And um, uh, I felt he said, well, uh, you know, if you can make at least as much as you're making working in the store, which at that point was minimum wage, you know, and do something else, I'm all for it. And so that... I did some math before I went out to sell the advertising to the local merchants in Montauk and figured I could double it. Uh, what I was making that summer was, uh, I guess by today's standards, it's hard to describe, but I think the numbers then were eight, like $800 for the summer, uh, which I suppose today might be uh, three, three or $4,000. And uh, I figured I could uh, double that by doing the newspaper. It turned out to be much more. and uh, And I loved it. I loved doing it.
0: Dance Papers is a free publication,
1: right? It was the first free paper that I know of, uh, and people have often said, told me that they didn't know of anyone else that did one before I did. Uh, I just figured that I could get a much more uh, larger readership uh, than any of the other papers in the area uh, very quickly simply by putting it in stacks for free in the motels and restaurants. That's how it came about.
0: Is it fair to say, Dan, that if someone says it happened in the Hamptons and you didn't know about it, then it probably never happened in the Hamptons?
1: That's, I, I think that's true even today. I just had, as I mentioned to you before we started, I had, I, we had an editorial meeting today and I was learning about all the new stuff. There's going to be a guy on Sunday who is going to run from Manhattan to Montauk, a 106-mile run and a sort of super marathon. Wow and i think that in in some ways might be a really good way to get out to the country you know instead of in your car or on the train certainly quieter you know than a chopper so we're we're going to approach it from that level but also give him his due you know but this is the
0: news of the day speaking of that getting to the hamptons how much different is it getting to the hamptons today than when you first went to the hamptons when you were a kid
1: it's night and day. Uh, when we came out, um, it was at least a four-hour drive, and um, a lot of it was over very narrow two-lane roads.
0: You and, were born uh, in New York City, raised in New Jersey, right? Yes,
1: I, I was. Um, but my uncles and aunts and my family was all in and around New York, Brooklyn and mm-hmm. Manhattan. So we were constantly having, you know, friends from there, and we would go to the city. So. I consider myself, um, as I said at the time, a a fellow who was attached to New York City with a small golden thread around my ankle, you know, wherever I am. I guess a lot of people
0: are like that. So then when did your family first start going out to the Hamptons?
1: In 56. My dad um, bought the drugstore. He had been a salesman for a cosmetics company for many, many years, and he was at that time in his 40s and... um, had a kind of midlife crisis and decided that he wanted to do something to help others. And we were living in New Jersey, uh, so when he began to th- think think what he might do, he came upon, of course, his license to be a pharmacist, which he had gotten in college and had never used. It was Brooklyn College of Pharmacy, so we had to find a place. He had to find a place for a pharmacy in New York, in uh, somewhere in New York State. And, um, He found one in Montauk. So we moved out there in 56. I was 16 at the time. That was my introduction to the East End, and I was bowled over by it. I mean, there's no... I'd never been there before. And there's absolutely no comparison between um, the eastern end of Long Island and, as I have subsequently learned, uh, almost anywhere you go, it's very unique.
0: What is the big draw for you? Why do you love it so much?
1: I love um, mostly the nature. Uh, I don't mean the you know the particular species that are going bankrupt or anything like that but uh the fogs the sunsets the water the beaches uh the birds it, it, the the smell of the salt um the breezes the, even the storms it's just a beautiful place absolutely um uh, chock full of water meeting land everywhere and and it's also a very uh unique place from a a vegetative point of view as well as an animal point of view. It's a very safe place. It seemed like a wonderful refuge uh, and um, a place where you could really find uh, peace. That's what I love about it.
0: You were saying when you first went to the Hamptons, you didn't take the LIE. You didn't take the Hamptons Jitney.
1: You got in your car and uh, you came out uh, to the end of construction of what was about to be the LIE, uh, which at that time was about as far as Great Neck, a little before Little Neck, I would say. The Horace Harding Parkway was being torn up. And then you would be on the uh, Robert and Moses' Northern State Parkway, and that would take you out as far as Smithtown, a little before it, where um, it ended. And um, from there, it was simply a matter of uh, back roads.
0: You, Dan, once drew your own map. Of Long Island's yes, East End. Yes, I did. And you created road names, made them up. I did. How did that come about?
1: Well, there weren't enough of them. What was what I discovered was that there were, uh, on some of the maps, I, I just cribbed the maps. I mean, obviously, the the, um, the roads were where they were, and they were whatever, however you were going to draw it, you weren't going to go out there and measure them or anything. You were going to get a, somebody else's map. Well, I got three other maps, and uh, so I drew from that. And there were a lot of dirt roads, most of them Rum Runner roads from the the 20s and 30s. And they were dotted lines. And so I decided that some of the names, particularly in East Hampton, are incredible, regular names. Uh, Abraham's Path, Highway Behind the Lots, uh, Highway Behind the Pond, Springs Fireplace Road. um, um, Just the list goes goes on and on. Um, And so I said, well... Who names these things anyway? Well, here's some that don't have names. I'll name them. So I did, and um, uh, most of them, when they got developed, uh, they even though I had been coming out with this map annually in a printing of twenty thousand, we would give them away like gas station road maps, and we had um, a little advertisements all around the borders of them. Uh, I don't think they they made a big dent, you know, in mapped them, you know. And then one day uh, I discovered that uh, one of the roads I named uh, was now an official name, and it was on the Hagstroms.
0: I thought that was great. What was the name of that road?
1: Uh, Well, it had been called Blank Lane, and um, it came to be called um, the name I gave it, which was the Werewolf Path. And uh, the other ones, some of them were uh, like Lois Lane, uh, Jeep's Folly, Uncle Ed's Romp. I thought, I mean, this one was probably one of the last ones that I did.
0: Werewolf Path. It's stuck.
1: It's stuck, and uh, it's there now, and I think there probably is a legend about how the name got to be that. I'm sure. sure.
0: I'm sure people have made up many different explanations. I am sure. The Hamptons today are synonymous for a lot of people with the rich and famous. Was that always the case?
1: No, it was synonymous as a rich man's... uh, uh, Well, it was synonymous as a celebrity and rich man's hideaway, uh, and by that, I mean it was uh, an area that was kind of bustling, if you want to call it that, with uh, tourism, some tourism, but mostly farmers and baymen and fishermen and sport fishermen and was that kind of place. And then there were in each town, each of the different towns, there were uh, very well-known people who didn't want to be bothered with uh, celebrity bothering them a lot. And so they were out there to probably work, we thought, and they were. Uh Uh, Edward Albee, who wrote the introduction to my first book, uh, moved out there about the same time that I did. Uh, Billy Joel moved out there, um, and and we just kind of left them alone uh, because we knew they just wanted to be left alone, so we didn't do anything about it. Um, There came a time, I have actually kind of, and I'm probably the man to do this, identified the kind of defining moment when the whole uh, genre shifted, and, uh, and and what I said at the time was that the celebrity gas has moved in over the Hamptons so that when you saw a celebrity before that, you went, shh, let's not look at him so he can think, you know, he, we don't want to make him feel self-conscious because uh-huh. we're proud that he's here and we hope to be able to have him stay because nobody bothers him, to, oh, my God, look who's there, you know. and And then some of them, you know, like Alec Baldwin will... Mm-hmm kind of shove somebody to keep that when it gets out of hand, and others are happy to have that, and they um, they want their name in lights. And there was kind of a moment when that transformation shifted. It happened in 1975, actually. It was a long time ago, but it took a long time to develop. But uh, at that time was when the movie Jaws was made and uh there's a whole interesting story about that you know it was uh, i think uh the second or third film made by Steven Spielberg and um uh people expected a great deal from him and they sure got it in that in that movie that movie was made from a book uh written by Peter Benchley which was about a, a little little Hampton Harbor <clears throat> I mean the whole conceit of the book was that the local authorities wanted to keep it hush hush that there was a man-eating shark out there eating mm-hmm. people because it might scare the tourists away and uh when you went to see that movie uh, it, which kept to that theme you were like how long is he going to keep from telling anybody <laughs> you know it's kind of the whole conceit of the movie and you know and some other swimmers just pulled down under you know screaming, and. um They were originally going to make it in the Hamptons, uh, but at the last minute they decided that the Hamptons had had a certain amount of change to it that didn't make it likely that if they shot it there they could kind of establish that the place wasn't so prosperous uh, that it would be willing to give up people's lives to keep the economy going. So they moved it to Martha's Vineyard, which I guess at that time did have that quality to it. And we were very disappointed because... It, it it was at that time that we felt this is a movie crew coming out here and they're going to bring in a lot of money. You know, they're going to make this thing. They're going to need lunch. They're going to mm-hmm. need hotels. So we were pretty disappointed about
0: that. But the star of that movie lived in the Hamptons well, though, that's right? When,
1: see, that's when that happened. What happened was, um, uh, they had the big premiere of the movie at the East Hampton theater. It was the world premiere of it, which we'd never had before. And, um, it's the first time I remember. I was standing across the street, looking at the front of the movie theater. There's a red carpet coming out from it. There's uh, photographers and reporters on both sides of the red carpet. There's limousines pulling up, people getting out, flash bulbs going off, and I thought, "What the hell is going? On? We, this is you know, this is crazy. This is obnoxious." And and um, so that's how it was held. And subsequently. Uh, for whatever their motives were, uh, Steven Spielberg uh, be- moved here at that time and uh, ne- has never left. And um, he became the draw for other, for actors, for other directors, for other producers, uh, for other people in the movie business, agents and so forth. And then that expanded into a whole celebrity East, you know, Hollywood East. And that's... Uh, Uh, a huge thing that's there today, in addition to a wealthy enclave. Right, well, the guy who
0: played the police captain in Jaws also lived there, and you have an article in your book about his wife.
1: Yeah, um, Roy Roy Scheider uh, was a wonderful man. I I, I have to say that many of the people that I've come to meet who are well-known and they're very... uh, they're they're very nice people. They, I, I think it's it's something you have to do or be in order for people to be attracted to spe- surround them, that that they give off that feeling of uh, fuzziness and likability, and um, uh, Roy Scheider. <clears throat> I never did get to know uh, Steven Spielberg. Uh, he's kept very uh, private. <clears throat> Roy Scheider, however, um, I became very good friends with because. I umpired the artist writers game for the last thirty years and for twenty years of those years he was the pitcher for um <clears throat> for the artists and I stood directly behind him every uh every ball game calling balls and strikes. I was the umpire. So we got to talk. I, we became friends. I remember him coming to our house for dinner. My son, who is now fully grown, was asking him how, how did they get the shark and where was it made. He was about seven at the time.
0: In your book, the story that revolves around Roy Schotter's wife revolves around a neon sign in Sag Harbor, one that she didn't want anyone to mess with.
1: Well, the story is rather dramatic. The fact that a town, which is an old whaling town, which was in its heyday in the early part of the 18th, uh, 19th century, um, would, want, would fall in love with a giant neon sign that had two words, sag and harbor. These letters were, I think, six feet tall, neon, on all day, all night, in the center of town on Main Street, put there, I believe, in the 1930s, is a remarkable thing. I suppose even though everyone was is, is still interested in preservation and accurate history, this became accurate history, even though it's a neon sign. She came out, as I said, it's on Main Street. She came out from the yoga class directly across the street from the sign to see that there was a workman on a ladder removing, he would already removed three or four of the letters. I think he had moved the uh, BOR at the, the end because he was starting low and was going to work his way up. And um, she said, you can't do that. And he said, I can too. It's owned by the movie guy and the, who owns the theater. And he's ordered these other little plastic signs to be put up in their place because this is a very old sign. And she went from store to store, <clears throat> rousing people out, sort of like Paul Revere might, getting everyone out onto the street, <laughs> confronting this guy. The, the Traffic was having a tough time getting through, saying, you can't do it. We're not going to let you do it. And they so intimidated him that he eventually um, uh, put the plastic letters back in the back of his truck and drove away, leaving the pieces of all these giant, the giant pieces of the neon sign down on the street uh, for further instructions on how to deal with an angry mob. And so they basically uh, they found somebody had a truck who could get it over there. There was a guy from the historic museum who said he could uh, he could store the letters in the, the basement for a while. And they managed to uh, ultimately, uh, they held a fundraiser. I had a long talk with the owner of the theater, and I said, this is going to be a good way for you to get brand new letters on your store if you'll only go along with it instead of saying you've been you've been robbed, you know, of, of these things that would belong to you, because they did. And uh, there's going to be a fundraiser. They're going to raise a lot of money, and they're going to, they're going to um, uh, uh, make exact replicas of these letters and uh, neon signs. They're going to put them on your building. So you know, be there, smile, and have a good time, and that's what's going to happen, and it did. It's a wonderful story, and it's one of the, the pieces in uh, uh, still in the Hamptons, which, by the way, is just uh, going is just now out, and you can buy it in bookstores.
0: That sign still shining bright. Oh, in it's Harbor? certainly
1: fine. All new letters.
0: In the book, you tell the story of a runaway Coast Guard station in the Atlantic Ocean. Talk about high drama on the seas, huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there used to be a Coast Guard, Guard station halfway between Amagansett and Montauk. That's a, uh, uh, a distance of 12 miles, and it was a very desolate area of sand dunes. And I guess it was a good place for a Coast Guard station back in the days when um, uh, you had— um, Ships coming ashore as shipwrecks and so forth. But by this time, this is a three story white building, shingle, uh, uh, clapboard building. And they wanted to take it out and put it in Montauk on Star Island, which is a small island in the middle of Lake Montauk, a causeway to get out to it. And they had bought, the Coast Guard had bought land there and they wanted to get it um, to somehow get it down the Montauk Highway out to Montauk, tow it because buildings get towed all the time out there and a guy with a fishing boat who owned a marina had just come back um, uh, from in the mill he'd been in the military a- in the navy and um, he um, he said i have another way i think i can get that thing out here and he he bid that he bid to do it which was going to cost about half as much as them taking a regular towing company from um, from the land that would take it on wheels and bring it and they'd have to take down a lot of wires and so forth and He said, well, where that Coast Guard uh, station currently is, is a very narrow strip of uh, peninsula of land. And on the ocean side, which is where it was, you could tow it across the peninsula about 200 yards to be on the bay. We could put a barge there, put it on the barge. And then I could tow it in my fishing boat out to Montauk, and he, he did that, and he had never towed anything like that before, and uh, he he got it uh, uh, well out into um, into uh, uh, the bay, um, Peconic Bay. He was coming along the coastline of um, Montauk and heading toward the jetties that lead into Lake Montauk, and a wind came up, and he noticed that on the he was on the on his boat with his mate. And they noticed that the uh, line had gone slack on the uh, tow. And so they opened the engine up to make it go a little faster. And then, what do you know, it's uh, picking up speed again, so they go a little faster. Finally, they've got the engine, there's, uh, smoke's coming out of the engine. It's going as absolutely as hard as it can to catch up. And the fact is, is that this uh, house on the barge is gaining on the boat that's towing it. In the wind, and they look at this, and they, and, and they don't know what they're going to do because it's it's, uh, you know, it's blowing 20, 25 knots. It's uh-huh. really good. But they had no clue that this was possible, that this thing would be pushing this house like this. So it appeared to them that, and soon they did the sort of mathematics in their heads like most men are able to do, and seeing the jetties up ahead and seeing the house coming up on them, and they realized this— they realized this house was going to pass them before they were going to get to the jetty. He said it was going to head out into the Atlantic toward Block Island. And it, and I guess in that moment, um, Carl the, uh this uh, marine owner, got, a, got this idea. And he said to his mate, just stay with the boat. Let it pull up alongside. You captain it after that. I'm going to jump on there and I'll deal with this. And so the mate said, what are you going to do? And he said, just do it. So he did. And they the, the house came, and the barge came up alongside, and Carl jumped onto the barge. And he went into the Coast Guard station, and he opened up all the windows on all three floors. And that saved it from going out to sea, because the wind wow. would come in one window, go through the house, come out the other. It was like taking the sails down, only in a kind of more complex way. So then they were able to... Um, uh, Get it to the jetty in time with it still behind them, so they could control it. And there's a picture of it in the uh, being being held uh, in the in the book. It's a great picture. Although by that time, when they, I, I guess it was, uh, the wind had settled down, or at least it looks like they weren't. They were pretty relaxed by that moment. But someone photographed it coming through the jetties into the harbor.
0: There are so many great stories in this book, and I wish we had more time to get to more of them. But before we let you go, I want you to share the story that you tell in the book about Colin Powell, the former Secretary of State, because you show a side of him that most of us have never seen before.
1: Well, I got a call from someone who told me, he said, you know, we all know who Colin Powell is. And I just saw him in a potato field in Sagaponic driving a tank. And he had his head out of the, the metal top and he was... Enjoying the coming up and down over the fields, he said. I said a tank, and he said not a current tank, like a World War One tank. And I said an antique tank. He, I said where in the hell would he get something like that? And he said I have no idea. I'm just telling you what I saw. I'm absolutely certain that's what I saw. So we looked into it, and we found that indeed <clears throat> he had, was doing that, and he had um, he didn't want anybody to know about it. Was what we were told, and. Um, He was staying at uh, Ronald Lauder's house, which is uh, on Wainscott Main Street, as a guest. And he had this uh, old but still operational World War I tank sent down on a flatbed truck from one of the uh, Army depots up in Westchester somewhere so that he could ride around in the fields with it and have a good time. And that's what he was doing. At the time... um, I respected the fact that he didn't want that in the paper. I mean, he was a dignified secretary of state, was considered as a possible person to run for president. And uh, and I thought, well, you know, let's leave that story alone. But here it is, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later. And I thought, well, we'll put that in, in the book. But there was another part of that, uh, and that is that. Later that summer, uh, we had had a series of concerts, one a year, out at the Deep Hollow Ranch in Montauk, out toward the lighthouse in a field where they'd have hay bales down. They built a huge soundstage, and we'd have uh, rock um, stars on stage who live out there. Um, Paul Simon was one who performed there. Uh, Ray Charles performed out there but he's not he was not from the East End but there were about six or seven of them and one of those concerts was Jimmy Buffett and you went out there it was always held around dusk and and you'd sit out there on these hay bales and it just the, the the feeling was so wonderful everyone was having a wonderful time and it was at this uh Jimmy Buffett concert and um we were in a, a kind of VIP section, <clears throat> and in the next part of, they were separated by ropes. I was all in a field, and um, in the next section, in the middle of um, fruitcakes or you know Margaritaville or whatever, he's thumping away. The volume is way up. I look over, <clears throat> and I see there is Colin Powell standing up, pumping his fist with a with a with a cardboard parrot on his head, <laughs> and I thought. What a guy, you know. I just thought, who knew? And uh, it was about two weeks after that that he went to the United Nations, and I saw him there with his PowerPoint presentation of where, you know, all the bad stuff was in Iraq. And I thought, I don't know. I know something about him that nobody else knows. So I thought I'd put it in a
0: book. (laughs) the Colin Powell story and many, many, many other stories about life in the Hamptons and still in the Hamptons, more tales of the rich, the famous, and the rest of us. Dan, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Dan Retiner is an award-winning writer and the editor and publisher of Dan's Papers, the Hamptons' free weekly newspaper. His new book is called Still in the Hamptons, more tales of the rich, the famous, and the rest of us. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Do you have a Hamptons story you want to share? Let us know about it on our Facebook page. We're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.